Well, good morning, Cross Life. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to share with you again this morning. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard a little bit of my story. You heard a little bit of my heart about reaching students and impacting students uh, with your lives. And if you have a paperclip and you've kept that paperclip and you haven't lost that paperclip, keep it up. Uh, hopefully, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go back and watch that message on Facebook Live and, and check it out. But um, hopefully, you're continuing to impact the students in your life. Uh, my name is Daryl. I am the uh, minister of high school students here. Love what I get to do. I love to get to serve the students of Cross Life and your families as well. Uh, today, we're starting a series. We're starting a new series. And Pastor, when he contacted me a couple weeks back and was like, hey, uh, I really want you to speak for me on the first. And I was like, oh, great, that'd be awesome. I, I enjoy the opportunity. And he goes, and I need you to start the, a new series for me. And I was like, great, what's it called? And he goes, from the cradle to the cross. And here's the passage of scripture I want you in. And it was the beginning of Matthew chapter 27. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. I'm not going to lie, I had a minor panic attack thinking about how in the world am I going to connect these dots? But then as I sat and I talked to a couple of the guys on staff, I talked to Doug, our East Campus pastor, talked to Pastor a little bit more about just the heart of this series. It all made sense. Because here we are, a couple, a couple months ago, almost a year ago exactly, we started this journey through the book of Matthew as a church. And, and we started, obviously, with the first couple chapters talking about baby Jesus being born and the, the birth story and, and all of it, watching him grow. And throughout the months, we've gone through and we've seen Jesus grow up. We've seen him be baptized by John the Baptist. We've seen his ministry. We've seen his healings. We've heard all the parables. We've seen all the, all the teaching. And we're turning the corner in this narrative of Jesus and his time on earth to a darker time. The cross. You see, as we get ready to celebrate the Christmas season, it's so easy to get excited about Jesus. Any Christmas fanatics in here? Like, I love Christmas. And if your hand's not up, I'll pray for you that in the next, like, 25 days, God will rescue your soul and you will love Christmas as much as you should. But I love Christmas. I love the trees. I love the lights. I love the cookies and the cookies and more cookies. Um, but I love all things Christmas because there's a certain joy that comes with the Christmas season. I think any of us could see that. I mean, I get excited. Like I'm usually the first one awake in my house by a long shot. And so I, I'm get, I get to be the one that when the sun's still down, I turn on the Christmas tree in our house. So like it's the only light in the house, Christmas tree in our front window, beautiful. And I just get to sit there in awe of it. And it makes me happy. It gets, gives me joy to, be, to see that and, and to reflect on the birth of Jesus. I mean, the birth of Jesus is such a fun thing to think about. And the way that we celebrate it has become just this grand gift-giving scheme um, that we, we get to partake in and have fun with, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when we think about the idea of the cradle to the cross, somewhere in that journey between the two, we try to separate the two. You see, the cradle is palatable. 
Like we could talk about the birth of Jesus and the cradle and, and the manger scene. And if you have one of those ceramic manger scenes, like nativity scenes in your house, you probably have it. And it's got the shepherd and Mary smiling and Joseph standing there like in calm and composed, even though they're living in a barn and their baby is, is laying in hay, like they're all happy about it. And then there's the donkey there that's always smiling, which I never understood. And then you have the wise men who really shouldn't be there for another two years, but they're is there anyway, and there, and you've got this, this, this whole thing, and we, we, we accept that. We embrace baby Jesus. We protect baby Jesus, right? Anybody have a family where you never put baby Jesus out until Christmas Day? Like you left the manger scene empty until Christmas Day? Yeah, you're a special kind of Christmas person. Good job, all right? Like, I, I, I love that. I love that tradition. And, and I love just the, everything that comes with Christmas is so easy to swallow. So as Christians, we make a big deal about Christmas and that's okay. But somewhere along the line, we try to divide the two. Because the cradle, as easy as that is to embrace, the cross, on the other hand, is so difficult. The cross being a device created specifically for torture and death. Not as fun as a baby shower. The cross being splintered and messy. a little harder to swallow than that cradle. But here's the thing I need us to understand as we go through this, this series from the cradle to the cross is this. You can't have one without the other. The cradle came for the cross. Without that cradle, Without Jesus, baby Jesus coming into the world in the way that he did in the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, without that, you can't have that cross. They cannot be separated. They cannot be divided. The Old Testament points towards both of these. We could, we could spend hours talking about Old Testament prophecy and, and all the things that pointed towards the coming Messiah and the way in which he came and the way in which he was killed, but we just don't have enough time. Everything that happens here in the story of Jesus, in, in this narrative, this account of his life, his real life that happened on this earth some 2,000 years ago was for a purpose. That cradle was for the purpose of the cross. And that cross is the reason that we could sit in this room today and worship. Because it's that cross that gave us that salvation, that sacrifice. So as we move towards Christmas, as we move into this series, and as we move into this season where it's not very normal for a church to be talking about the, the, the arrest of Jesus this many weeks right before Christmas, and it's not normal for a church to talk about the crucifixion as we approach the, the birth of Jesus and what we're celebrating in Christmas. But if you take a step back and look at the big picture, it makes perfect sense that we're reminded that the cradle leads to the cross. It always has, and it always will. It'll always point that direction. 
It's always been the cross. If you have your Bible, say open up to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be camping out today. Um, and we're going to just spend a little bit of time looking at this passage. But then after we go through the first couple of verses, I want to hone in on a section. Because I feel like as the church of today, we can align with some of the people that are mentioned in this passage. And there's something that we could take from it and we can learn from it as we move towards Christmas that we can apply to our lives and hopefully um, it'll work well for us and, and we'll walk out of here encouraged and challenged to follow Jesus more closely as we, as we celebrate Christmas. Matthew chapter 27, we'll catch you up to speed. At this point, Jesus has been arrested. One of his disciples has betrayed him. One of his closest friends ha has denied him, as Tim talked about last week. And we pick up in the beginning of chapter 27, where, where Jesus is being delivered to Pilate. 27, verse 1, it says this, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Why? Why is it important to know this? The Roman, or excuse me, the religious leaders of the time, the Jewish leaders had had enough. They had hit their breaking point. They knew they needed Jesus dead. They, they, they were done putting up with it. They were done with the crowds. They were done with people following him. They, they, there was jealousy and envy raging in their veins. But they didn't have the authority to kill. They didn't have the authority to, to crucify. So they went to the one man that did. They go to Pilate. Pilate, as the, the Roman leader of that area, was in charge of keeping the peace in the area and, and just kind of making sure things were going smooth. But he also had the ability to sentence someone to death. The religious leaders knew that. They take him to Pilate, the governor. It goes on in, in verse number three. We take a little side sidestep away from Jesus before Pilate. And at this point, Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, um, has a little second, guess, like second thoughts about what he had done. He starts, the guilt starts to, to creep in. And he goes back to the religious leaders in verse number three. It says this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought them with the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been, been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. This passage in, in, uh, in Matthew has always intrigued me. 
I mean, there is the, the, just the, the, the issue of Judas feeling that guilt and going back and, and being denied to reverse what he had done. And he throws the money in and runs off and he hangs himself out of extreme guilt and shame. But then you have the religious leaders. And this is where their true colors start to shine a little because you see how they're just overwhelmed by tradition and, and overwhelmed by, by just rules and regulations over common sense. Because here's the religious leaders that paid Judas that blood money for Jesus, or paid Judas the blood money for Jesus, yet they wouldn't allow it back into the treasury because suddenly they're the moral police of the situation. So steeped in their own tradition and their own regulations that they can't see the fault in their own thinking. But here's the thing. God didn't see it that way. You see, earlier in the book of, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Zechariah chapter 11, it's foretold of the 30 pieces of silver that would be used. It says this, um, that there, uh, that in Jeremiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah says, it's in the book of Zechariah, where it says, and they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of him who the price had been paid is set on the sons of Israel and they gave for the potter's fields, the Lord directed him. It was all part of God's plan. It was all part of that promise that, hey, this is gonna happen. This has to happen. And this 30 pieces of silver that has been denied and now has been used to buy that purchase the potter's field is all part of this Old Testament prophecy coming to fruition. In the midst of the chaos, God's still in control. We pick back up in, in verse number 11. It says this, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they have testified against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. I love this little interaction. And at first, I read this and I'm like, Jesus, why aren't you standing up for yourself? Like, why aren't you saying, no, that's, that's not true. Why, why aren't you defending yourself when the religious leaders are coming at you in such a way? And the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, the more I researched it, theologians are split all over the place on this. You could read like eight different commentaries and every single one says a different reason. <laughs> but I like to think that Jesus just knew what had to be done. You see, earlier in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, he said, God, if, this, if there's any other way, take this from me. Take this cup from me. I can't bear this. Like, I, it's just, you need to take this if there's any other way. But if not, your will be done. And I think when Jesus made that statement, he knew. He knew what had to be done. So I like to think that, that as he's standing before Pilate and the religious leaders are, are throwing these accusations at him, he just takes it. Because he knows. He knows who he is. He knows what has to happen. He knows what's going on. Pilate gives him chance after chance to, to speak up for himself. 
But Jesus remains silent. Verse number 15 says this. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they, they <clears throat> had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate sees a way out. He says, at the feast, I'm allowed to release a prisoner to them. It's tradition, a Roman tradition that I can do this. I'll present Barabbas. There's no way that they'll want Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist. Like there's no way that they would ever ask for him to be released into the general population again. Or Jesus, who simply was healing people and teaching and praying and leading life and changing people's lives. Surely they'll select Jesus to be released. Well, the religious leaders had a different plan, had a different thought. You see, they, 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 they start to persuade, the scripture says, the crowd. And if you've ever been in a large crowd and been in a mob situation, you realize it doesn't take much to change the course of a crowd, right? You start to get that chant going and all of a sudden like, whoa, it takes over. I don't know if you're a college football fan, but I was watching last night um, Alabama take one on the chin uh, from Auburn because someone couldn't count to 11 instead of 12. Uh, but it's, uh, if you're an Alabama fan, I'm sorry. My Virginia Tech Hokies lost yesterday too. I don't want to talk about it. But as you're watching that, I was amazed at how quickly, the moment that clock struck zero, how fast the crowd swarmed. And, and Auburn fans were coming from the third story of the, of the stadium and somehow ending up on the 50-yard line. It doesn't take much to get a crowd going. It doesn't take much to incite a riot. And the religious leaders knew this. So they start feeding the crowd. He lied to you. He's a blasphemer. Remember what he did in the temple? Remember that? He's not of you. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And get that chant going. Get that crowd going. And next thing you know, the crowd is completely shifted from singing praises to Jesus when he was coming into the town to screaming, crucify him. Verse 24, it says this. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. 
Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. When Pilate realized he couldn't do what he wanted to do in releasing Jesus, he caved. He caved to the pressure, he caved to, to the religious leaders of the time and the crowd, and he crumbled and he delivered Jesus to be crucified. I imagine that the, the disciples at this point are just in utter chaos. They're watching this man that they've been following for three, three years now, and, and watching him get arrested was enough, and now he's being sentenced to death. And, and they're watching everything that they've been living for is starting to crumble from their perspective. Everything that they, they had worked for is being just folded up underneath them. But we know that it had to happen. We know that God had a plan in this. We know that the crowd had to turn on Jesus. We know that the crucifixion had to happen. God allowed it to happen so that we could move from the cradle to the cross to an empty tomb. Everything that played out here was on purpose. Everything was thought out from day one. From an outsider's perspective, it's looking pretty gloom. It's looking pretty, pretty like down and out. But God had a plan. All these things took place for a reason. The cross has always been a part of the plan since the cradle and even before that. This morning, though, I want to focus in. In the time we have left, I want to focus in on the crowd. The crowd here Something happened. Something happened from Sunday, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, where the crowd is waving the palm branches and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's coming. Like their Messiah is here and they, they've embraced that truth. And then on Friday, they're screaming, crucify him. Something flips, a, a switch went off somewhere in there. And I, honestly, I don't know. The scripture doesn't really say exactly what happens, but we can infer some things. And I think some of them are the same things that cause us to maybe turn our backs away from God in our lives. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, we probably relate with the crowd more than we're willing to admit. We sing praises on Sunday, but by Friday, we're living on our own way. We're living on our own power. We stop relying on God. C.J. Mahaney said it this way in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. I identify most with the angry mob screaming, crucify him. That's who we should all identify with. Because apart from God's grace, that is where we would all be standing. And we're only flattering ourselves to think otherwise. Unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd, full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. You should see yourself in the crowd. Because how many times do we fall short? 
How many times with our actions are we screaming crucify him rather than celebrating him? How many times does sin creep into our lives and and we allow that to, to lead us rather than the Holy Spirit to lead us? What happened in this crowd's life? I think there's a few things that we can point to. First is this, unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. The Jewish people were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a ruler. They were tired of being ruled by the Romans. And when Jesus was entering into the town, I think they thought he was going to be a militant leader that was going to kick Rome out. Yet five days later, he's been captured. Their expectations of what they thought Jesus were or was, was not met. It fell short. It missed the mark for them, and they were disappointed. He didn't do what they had thought he had come to do, even though he came and did exactly what he had come to do. Their expectations were unmet. Also, their traditions were disrupted. Disrupted traditions will, will cause so much turmoil. I mean, you just have to look back in Matthew 21 where Jesus walks into the temple and he, and, he, and he starts flipping tables, right? That's like my favorite illustration of Jesus. Bull whip and flipping table Jesus. Like that's, that's just, that's the Jesus I want to follow. Like that's masculine Jesus, right? It's this idea of him just cleaning house. But put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish leaders of that time and the, the faithful Jewish uh, uh, people in Jerusalem. They see their precious temple, rich of tradition and, and all these things that they, they circled their lives around being disrupted. Not only that, he taught differently. He taught on prayer differently. He claimed different things than the Jewish leaders were teaching. He was disrupting their everyday life. Their traditions had become idols in their lives, and he called them out on it. Disrupted traditions, unmet expectations, fear of infliction. I truly believe the crowd feared for their lives. whether it be the Roman rule that they were fearful of, or maybe it was the religious leaders, they caved to the pressure because they feared. They feared what might happen. They feared the unknown. They feared what might take place. But then the last thing there, uh, and what caused the change in the crowd, I think is this, is when you look on Sunday, when they're celebrating Jesus to Friday, there had to have been a lack of transformation There was no life change. There was no heart. Their motive for following Jesus in that window of time was very self-centered. He has come to save us from this Roman rule. And when he didn't do that, they're done. Next man up. There was a lack of transformation. There was a lack of life change. And here's the thing, guys. Church, if we're honest with ourselves, how many times do these things describe us? How many times have your expectations for God been unmet? Because you want things on your timeline. 
How many times have your traditions been disrupted because someone tells you exactly what God's word says and it doesn't line up with what you want to do? How many times have have you held back from living your faith publicly because you're scared of what might happen on the job or you're scared of what might happen in school or you're scared of what your family might think when you tell them you've been radically changed by Jesus? Fear of infliction. Or maybe it's just lack of transformation. Maybe on paper you look like a good Christian, you go to church, you're involved. But day after day, there's no change. Your heart doesn't desire to follow Jesus. So how as a church, how as individuals, can we fight this? How can we fight to be like the crowd? How can we stand against this? How can we avoid being the crowd in this story? What can we do differently What can we do day in and day out to set ourselves up for the future? Number one is this. Remember the promises. This book is filled with promises from God. And I have yet to find one that he hasn't fulfilled in his time. And if he hasn't fulfilled it yet, he's getting ready to. My God is a God of promises. He's a God who fulfills his promises. He keeps his promises. Cling to that promise. Remember the truth of God's word. Remember that he is there for us. He's on our side. He's working for us. Remember the promises. Number two, trust the process. Some of you guys in here are probably sports fans and you probably just snickered me using that that phrase. And if you're a sports fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Philadelphia 76ers. For years, they were the laughing stock of the league. And they used the terminology, trust the process, trust the process. They were one of the first modern era teams to really use this term tanking, losing on purpose, to rack up top tier players. And if you're a Miami Dolphins fan in here, you know exactly what we're talking about because they tried to do it, but then they started winning games and they can't even tank right. (laughs) But that idea of trust the process, trust the process, trust what God is doing. Trust that he has a plan. That cross to the cradle plan was perfect in every way. But from an outsider's perspective, it made no sense whatsoever. Like without knowledge of what was going on behind the scenes, the cross and the cradle makes no sense. But when you take a step back and look at the big picture, you see it makes perfect sense. You see that God is in every detail. And we need to trust that. I could stand up here for hours and telling you example after example of ways that God has shown this to me in my life. And I was reminded of one of them the other day. We were sitting with some friends, my wife and I, and we we were talking about our adoption process. Our youngest daughter is named Kanika. She's eight years old. Uh, She's from Thailand. And we adopted her when she was two years old. And 
if you know anything about international adoption, it's one of the most expensive things you could ever endeavor into. Like, it's just ridiculous how much money they charge you for visas and paperwork, all right? But we had grants, and we did a lot of money and fundraising and all these things, and throughout the process, God was faithful, and, like, we, we had money. But there came a point, at one point in the process, where we thought, Amanda and I thought that we were going to have to back out. We had a deadline coming, and we didn't have the money. Like, we knew, like, this is it. Like, maybe this is God's way of saying, hey, this isn't, this isn't your child. Like, this isn't the one that I have for your family. Um, let's back up and, and restart and reset. And so we prayed about it. We didn't really tell anybody because we didn't want to feel like the church that we were serving in, like, to feel guilty and, like, give us money because they, all this thing. So we just kind of kept it quiet. We prayed about it heavily. And I'll never forget it. The deadline was coming up that week. And that Sunday morning after church, we're, we're in, in the, the lobby area, kind of near like a guest reception area in our church. And this lady comes up to us, and a friend of ours from church, and her, she has two, uh, two kids that were adopted. And she walked out. She knew we were in process of adopting. And she said, hey, I just want you to know that we're praying for you. Um, and her husband had passed away earlier that year and had a, a big financial payout over it. And, and she, she handed us an envelope. And... And said, hey, we're praying for you. Take this. Um, hopefully it helps you with your adoption. And then she walked away. And honestly, it was busy. There was a lot of people in there. So I remember I put the envelope like in my Bible and like continued talking to other people. And Amanda and I were walking out of the church and I opened up the envelope. Exactly the amount we needed. Like, if that doesn't show you that God's in the midst of things, that God has a plan. And that's just a small example. I mean, we can look at the entire like, process of Jesus' life and, and everything that he did was for a purpose and for a plan and to fulfill Old Testament prophecy to prove that he was the Messiah and the coming Messiah. God is in the business of, uh, of fulfilling his promises and, and keeping his promises. And if we just trust what he's doing and we trust his timing and we trust and continue to follow him, guys, listen, I'm telling you, your life will be radically changed. Trust the process. Trust what God's doing. Trust what he's up to. Remember his promises. Trust the process. And third, remember the purpose. As we step into the Christmas season, as you see the manger scene and you see the nativity and you hear the Christmas carols and you hear the Christmas story, Remember why. It wasn't just so that we could overeat and give gifts and sit around a tree. It was so that that baby could grow up, live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, and defeat death in the grave, raised from the dead, and offer us salvation. Remember the purpose. When you remember the purpose of, of Jesus and the reason that he came and how he came and the way in which he did it, and you live your life in such a way that, that reflects that, it will change everything about you. Because now you're not just remembering the purpose, you're living the purpose. Your salvation now is, is solidified in your heart and you have to share that with others. 
I love our church and the way that we've embraced this mission statement of loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, trusting Jesus, and following Jesus. And that's great for a church mission statement, but is it your personal statement? Is it the way in which you're going to live your life? Are you going to live on purpose? Are you going to love Jesus more? Are you going to know him more? Are you going to trust him more? And ultimately, are you going to follow him more closely? As we step into Christmas, never forget the purpose of the cradle is simply the cross. Avoid becoming like the crowd and remember the purpose. Trust the process and remember the promises. As we close this morning, as we move towards a time of prayer and invitation, I ask that every single one of us investigates our hearts and our minds. Will you follow more closely? Will you trust Jesus? Will you live for Jesus? Will you remember his promises? Will you remember his purpose? We have an opportunity over the next couple of weeks to invite others into our church and into the Christmas celebration. But let's be intentional in pointing people not just to the cradle, but to the cross and the salvation that that offers. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.